Hello everyone and welcome back to Sightless Fun, a podcast about board game accessibility for people who are blind and visually impaired. I'm your host, Ertai Shashko, and today we're going to talk about gateway games for the blind. This is going to be a special two-part episode, and I brought some reinforcements today. They are returning guests, Nancy Feldman and Ryan Peach. Welcome back to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Okay, so how is this going to work? First, we're going to have a brief chat about gateway games and how we can compare gateway games for the blind versus people that are sighted. And then uh, we are going to share our top five lists. Basically, every one of us has their own top five gateway games list. And in this first part, we're going to talk about our the games in our fifth and fourth position. And then in the second part that will air in about two weeks, we're going to cover our top three games. So that will be a total of 15 games. So in the past few episodes, I've mentioned games like Carcassonne, I've mentioned Mysterium, and I've mentioned why they are a horrible idea to play with someone who is blind. But they are mentioned in a lot of Uh, top 10 gateway games lists, especially like if you go to YouTube and just search for a list of top 10 games or like many of the popular sites, uh, at least one of those games will be in such a list. Another one is Ticket to Ride. And unless you are a hardcore gamer like Nancy here, who is using her Braille sense when playing Ticket to Ride, it definitely is a very let's say, hard game to play blind. So yeah, let, let's let's start with Nancy. So Nancy, what does a gateway game mean to you? Well, first, I want to just say I agree with Ticket to Ride. It didn't appear on my list either because it's too, it requires too much visual processing, I think, of the board to be really effective as a gateway game. And I think a gateway game is one that uh, sort of introduces a new aspect of board gaming in a way that is enjoyable and easy to wrap your head around as a blind gamer or any kind of gamer. But in our case for blind gamers, it's a game that says, Hey, I'm playable and I am going to take you away from these, these standard things that you started with like Monopoly and Scrabble and checkers. And those are fine games, but the board gaming hobby nowadays has so many more options. A gateway game is one that would introduce you to a new aspect of the hobby and let you uh, decide whether you like that particular aspect of of the hobby and want to look even further. Yeah. And how about you, Ran? My answer is similar. I do feel that a, a gateway game should also have something that may be familiar to an audience, uh, from some other source, be it, uh, classic games or popular culture, something that they recognize that then can tie into those uh, newly introduced mechanisms and concepts that uh, become more prevalent in the greater hobby. That's a good point, and I agree. How would you differentiate a gateway game for the blind versus uh, for people who are fully sighted? I think one way is, well, for me on my list, I didn't put any tile laying games initially. Um, 
because often a game board that changes every time can be really hard to wrap your head around as a, if you're new to the hobby. Similarly, I didn't put any roll and write games where you, um, you know, maybe roll dice and then have to draw a picture based on the symbols of the dice. So what I'm trying to find are games that um, don't rely too much on vision. And whereas, of course, if I were doing this for sighted players, I might include roll and write games or or tile games, uh, tile placement games. So I guess that's it's just making sure that there aren't so many visual components that the game becomes unplayable. That's what I had to take into consideration when looking at games, gateway games for blind people. Yeah, I do agree. And I think that uh, some of what Nancy is saying will show up in my selections once we finally get to the top five. Uh, I'll say that what I consider to be the difference between those with sight and those without with regards to gateway games, is access to and utilization of the mechanisms. So there are some some games that one might consider to be uh, uh, gateway games that are suitable to the sign, but that have cited, I should say, uh, but have mechanisms that just aren't accessible or would be made accessible in such a way for the blind player that it would not be the same game. So what dexterity games, for example, uh, you could include a game like Pitch Car uh, or Rhino Hero or Junk Art. Uh, some of those games are considered to be fun games that might be uh, making into some gateway lists, but they involve certain kinds of dexterity that are difficult to impossible for someone with a visual disability or even someone with a physical disability for that matter. Um, but would be totally fine uh, for, for the broader audience. While there are other mechanisms that can be worked around uh, either through some sort of physical adaptation like Braille, replacing resources, or in terms of knowing how to ask the right kinds of questions to get information from the other players to then make decisions. Um, And so they they end up being gateway games that work for everyone. Yeah, that's a very good point about dexterity games. In the episode that we recorded with Nancy, so that's episode 8, she mentioned... uh, about dexterity games, and you play those games to amuse other people around you. Yes, that's that's the, my sole purpose <laughs> in life when I play those games. Um, yeah, that that's sadly true. And I think Ryan, you made a good point. One of the things that it, uh, that's important about a gateway game for blind people is it should be a good gateway game for everybody. Um, whereas a number of games that would be good gateway games for sighted people would not be good gateway games for everybody, right? Because they wouldn't work for blind people. So, I think that in terms of defining what is and is not the gateway can be a bit of a moving target. A lot of it depends on the experiences of the people you're trying to play the games with, their interest level, um, what we'll be discussing with regards to those games we consider to be uh, of a gateway to the hobby may be above or below the level someone else may consider to be a gateway to the hobby. So I wouldn't say that it's an an entirely objective thing to say this is the line in which you cross over into the greater, more immersive hobby. Uh, uh, And that line is the line. 
But I think a lot of what we're going to be talking about here fits into what a lot of those people who think about games as being either gateway or more immersive might identify as gateway. Yeah, true. Right. So let's let's move on to our games. We're going to start with game number five. And as Nancy is the only lady in this group, let's start with Nancy. So, Nancy, what's your number five game? My number five game is Sentinels of the Multiverse. And it's a game that allows you to play a superhero trying to uh, defeat a, a supervillain. And the nice thing about Sentinels of the Multiverse is that... Um, you have a wide number of superheroes to choose from, so I think there are about 30 if you have all of the expansions. <laughs> if you have the base game, I think it might be more like eight or nine. I can't remember. And when you start the game, each person chooses a superhero, and they receive a deck of cards that is specific to that superhero. And that's one of the things that I think makes this a manageable game as a gateway game. Um, you have a deck of 40 cards for your superhero, and each card has text that tells you what the card does. Um, some of the cards in your deck you'll have multiples of, and some you won't. And so each superhero has different abilities based on, you know, based on the theme of their deck. And so that also means that you'll get to explore different styles of play based on, you know, how, how that deck works. And so... Um, everyone, once they've chosen a superhero, you choose a villain that you'll be fighting against, and you choose an environment. So you could be fighting on a space station or in the city streets or uh, underwater in Atlantis, that kind of thing. And then basically you try and defeat the villains before they destroy the city or wreak whatever havoc they're trying to wreak. When I brailed the game, um, I gave each hero, you know, each, their own identifier and then numbered their cards from 1 to 40. And I put some keywords on the cards like one shot or ongoing or things like that to help people identify, um, you know, how the card was played. But you still have to look up the card text um, in, in a file to see what the card actually does. One of the reasons this becomes a gateway game, though, is uh, this is a cooperative game. So let's say you have four players and you're all playing superheroes, and you, your cards can be face up when it's your turn, right? So everyone can see what you have. So if you need help sorting out what you uh, want to do, if there are other sighted people at the table, they can help you with that. Um, there's really no private information in Sentinels, which is very nice. And so I think that helps it be easily adaptable. Uh, for blind players. And I do know blind players who don't braille their cards at all. I was just talking to one of them this morning before we got started. So uh, there are certainly ways to to make this a very uh, you know easy to get started game. And I also found the Sentinels community was very helpful. Uh, just to plug to them that when I started brailing Sentinels, I was overwhelmed by the amount of card text and I mentioned that on Twitter, and somebody who I didn't even know popped in and said, hey, the Sentinels community will transcribe all of the card text into Excel for you. And they did. Oh, that's very nice. It was very nice. It simplified my brailing of the game. I was so happy. And all of the rules are online in an accessible PDF, by the way, so that's also good. 
Oh, that's very nice. Uh, yeah, uh, the game's published by Greater Than Games. And yep. uh, there was a post on the Board Game Geek forums by a fellow band gamer named Chris. Um, he was asking for an accessible version of the Spirit Island rulebook, which is also published by Greater, Greater Than Games. And I know they mentioned that there was a mistake with the PDF that they had published. So they prepared a Word document for Chris. And that was very nice of them. So yeah, uh, looks like that publisher does care about blind gamers like us. They do. And when I reached out to Greater Than Games for the card text for all the cards, they explained that because of how the, their games are published, the card text wasn't really easily accessible. But they were perfectly happy to have the Sentinels community type up all the card text and weren't concerned about that at all. So uh, anyway, the game is great to play. Um, we have played many a game where we're up until midnight because we start with one game and decide we're going to play two or three before we're done. So <laughs> um, the other thing I like about Sentinels is that each of the superheroes has a rating um, how difficult that deck is to play as a new player to the game, you can pick something with a difficulty of one, which is straightforward and easy. And if you become more familiar with the game, you can pick a deck that grows exceedingly more difficult and has more convolutions to play. Mm. So each turn you're going to start out and, you know, you can use one of your powers because every superhero has a power and might have more if they have other cards on the table. And then you can, there are lots of ways for you to do damage to the villains or destroy parts of the environment and there are also good ways for you to interact and help other players which is another thing i like about this it's like i said it's very cooperative and so it definitely creates a spirit of camaraderie as you play one of the things i like about the concept of sentinels in the multiverse is that while players may know what superheroes are and what comic books are with sentinels of the multiverse you're not playing as any of the named superheroes or supervillains from comic books you may know or have heard of. So you're free to sort of make up your own stories and not feel that you need to have some sort of background knowledge about the Marvel or DC comic universe or specific superheroes to get into and enjoy a game like Sentinels of the Multiverse. That's true. Yeah, and yeah, as you said, like uh, you can also play it without having to braille games, which I guess is important uh, because, like, not everyone who is go blind or going blind uh, knows braille, and or doesn't have a brailler, let's say, at home. So, and like you talked about going with a stylus <laughs> and doing manual labor and going through each card yes. so sentinel cells has uh, a lot of cards that uh, would need to be brailled but since it's public information and uh, other sighted players can help you you can pretty much get going immediately and that's true and in fact for a long time i didn't have all the villains brailled and i just had one of the sighted players at the table run the villain and I would run the environment because I brailed the environments because those decks are only like 15 cards. So it's a, it's a very easy game to get started and that would not require uh, you to braille it. So that, that's why it's on this list. Can you play the game uh, solo after you've brailed it now? 
Yes. Yeah. So that's yeah, absolutely that's one of the problems with blind gamers. If we don't know Braille, playing games solo is extremely hard. Yeah, it would become complicated. And there are lots of games out there I would like to try playing solo, but I I don't see an easy way. Even with the games brailed, some of them would be hard. Uh, I think Pandemic would be hard. I've always played with at least one-sided player at the table to manage the board. Right. All right. So that was Sentinels of the Multiverse. And Ryan, what's your number five? My number five is Favor of the Pharaoh. This is a game for up to four players. It's primarily a dice game. So the players are racing to get to a point where one player will roll at least seven dice with all of the faces being of the same value. So the dice are all picked. uh, And they have different colors and different arrangements of the values. You'll start out the game first round with three dice. And using a Yahtzee-like mechanic, you continue can continue to re-roll your dice, but you must set one die aside each time you re-roll, and that is what that die is going to be, until you decide you want to stop. In rolling these dice, you're trying to make arrangements or, or dice combinations that will get you one of the tiles that are arranged in a grid of rows and columns in front of the players. Uh, And those will start out with needing two dice, then three, four, five, six, all the way up to the very top of what is sort of a pyramid of tiles with the the queen. So so this game is a sort of a light Egyptian-esque theme to it. But you don't need to know anything about the uh, dynasties of the great Egyptian pharaohs or the pyramids or anything to really play and enjoy this game. As you continue to get the tiles, they'll let you do different things, uh, get more dice, get dice that give you uh, uh, better values, or uh, they may have a side that when you, if, if you happen to get that side, it will let you do something to other dice, this sort of thing. Uh, some, some of them um, you'll get for the rest of the game. Some of them, once you use that tile up in a later turn, it's been used up. You only get one use out of it. And so it's all about being able to get more dice, the ability to change the die values to eventually get to where you can make your dice into what you need them to be to get to a place where you either start the end game or you have the most dice. So once you get to that end game, once someone can roll or decides to roll at least seven dice and they manage to get them to be all the same value, that's where everyone else is going to get a chance to try and beat that player, either by rolling that number of dice and getting a higher value on a matching value in each of the faces, or by rolling uh, more dice with matching faces of any value. And so all of the other players will compete and, and whoever ends up at the at the very end with the, the highest number of dice with a matching value ends up winning this game. I consider this one to be a gateway game in that you get some of that familiarity from the theme 
although I wouldn't say it's uh, terribly important to the gameplay. And some of that uh, uh, Yahtzee-like mechanism of re-rolling your dice and setting something aside while adding in this ability to manipulate the number of dice you can roll in future turns and the ability to re-roll dice that you don't like to try and get a better result you do want in order to get the tiles you're looking to get. And some of those tiles are limited. Some any player can get, there'll be enough for everyone, but some of them, there are fewer than the number of players. So once they run out, even if you happen to roll a dice that equal what you need to get that tile, that spot could be empty. And so then you have to find the next next best thing to use your dice on as you're racing with the other players to try and be in the best position by the time the end game rolls around. The thing I find most problematic with this as a gateway game, uh, and the reason it's in my number five spot, is the setup. There is a picture in the book for the sighted player that, that says, if this is your first game, use this picture and set your game up like this. And, and and then you can get into your first game. But the way this game is constructed with how the the different rows are marked and the tiles that are used in the game, you're not using all of the tiles. So there are there's more than one type of tile that can fit in the same spot. And so in later games, when you're looking for more replay value, there are ways to swap out one stack of tiles for a different stack or change um the basic prerequisites uh like for what you need to roll on the dice to get the tile that sits in that spot um and that unfortunately requires some sighted assistance or maybe some braille adaptation to make that accessible for the blind player to uh set up themselves because there are a couple of different parts that need to come together but if you're always teaching the game to new people that picture in the book uh is a big help because it just shows you exactly how the game should be set up with where the tiles need to go and everything needs to go to get started with that first game. So how long does a game usually last? Mm, An hour, hour and a half, maybe. Right. And so the winning condition is for one of the players to get seven dice and then they roll, uh, they need to roll like seven of a kind. Was that the winning well, objective? A player has to roll at least seven of a kind, they, which allows them to take the uh, queen's tile at the very top, and that starts the end game. Everyone gets an equal number of turns to roll dice, so whoever the first player is, they're always going to feed the first player. So if somehow... You you end up, you're the last player, and you decide that you want to end, end the game. You've got seven dice. You can make them seven of a kind, and no one else has taken that. You could take that, and that's it. The game's over. You win because all of the other players have already have already gone. So who rolls for that end game can be important at the very end. If I were the first player and I did that, then the second, third, and fourth player will get a chance to beat me uh, and end each other. So if player two beats player one, then player three has to beat player two and so on in order for them to 
to win the game. And there are situations where if a player has struggled to get their engine going with the tiles that they've collected during the game, they may end up in a situation where they just cannot roll enough dice to beat any of the other players that that currently occupy the top spot. So they just get eliminated. Um, I think there was a predecessor. There was. Yes. It was called To Court the King. Yeah, and I played that. And then we bought Favor of the Pharaoh. And for whatever reason, it never hit the table. So I don't know what to say. I, I, I did enjoy To Court the King. Um, although sometimes it was, like you said, it was so clear that there was going to be just one winner and there was nothing anybody could do about it. As I understand it, Favor of the Pharaoh is an update to Court the King from the same designer. And so with that, they attempted to fix some of the issues that were addressed in to Court the King with regards to replay about value, dominant strategies, and things like that. Gotcha. I don't know if it addressed all of the issues players had with to Court the King because I've never played it or looked into those issues. Just it happened to hear about what the designer had to say from going from to court the king to favor the pharaoh yeah and the yahtzee mechanics that you mentioned uh are there rerolls up to three times just like in yahtzee no you can continue to re-roll so long as you have dice to roll oh i see but every time you re-roll you have to set at least one die aside you could set more than one die aside or you could decide that you've your dice have the values you want and stop rolling hmm yeah well, I guess then, I don't know, Farkle like, uses uh, those mechanics. Basically, you can re-roll uh, until you like stop or, well, you get numbers that don't give you points and stop. So, yeah, nice. That was Ryan's number five, Favor of the Pharaoh. And my number five is King of Tokyo. So another game that uses dice and the Yahtzee mechanic. In King of Tokyo... Uh, players become one of those giant monsters, so also known as kaijus, like Godzilla and uh, King Kong, so that type of monsters, except those are not the names used in the game, probably because of licensing issues. So I think King of Tokyo has Gojira, but yeah, King of Tokyo is a game for two to six players. Um, it's designed by famous designer called Richard Garfield, who is famous for Magic the Gathering. And we talked about this and its younger brother, younger but uh, more complex uh, brother, uh, King of New York, in episode three of this podcast. So if you want to hear a deeper analysis on those games, you can check episode three. Uh, so in King of Tokyo, uh, you get six dice and those dice have uh, different actions on them that you can do. So once you uh, roll and re-roll, uh, so you can re-roll up to three times, uh, you can do, you can attack other monsters, so other players, you can heal yourself or you can collect energy to buy power-ups. And the other die faces give you victory points. So in order to win in this game, you either need to collect 20 victory points or you need to eliminate uh, other players. 
I believe this is the only game in my list that uh, contains player elimination. And in modern board games, uh, player elimination is a bit frowned upon. So, uh, but uh, in King of Tokyo, I guess when a player gets eliminated, there is... And that player doesn't have to wait too long until the new game starts because uh, the game usually ends after 10 to at most 15 minutes since the first player gets eliminated. So it's not too bad. So unlike Monopoly, where if you get eliminated early, you may end up waiting for two hours until the game is over. So from the accessibility point of view, there's no hidden information in this game. So you don't have to mark any of the cards or... Uh, braille anything, uh, if you can read braille. Um, the power-up cards are all public and they are displayed, uh, so up to three at a time are displayed for everyone to see. And all you need is one-sided player uh, at the table just to read out the cards. And usually even for other-sided players, if they are sitting like a, on the other side of the table and can't see the cards, the one that's closest to them will read those cards out loud. So that it's not something that uh, the assistance required will only be required for the person that's blind. Um, the dice are quite large. So if you are partially sighted, you should be able to see some of the symbols. They are quite large. So I believe they are uh, 20 millimeter dice. Um, they are well con contrasted. And yeah, the energy cubes, there's only like one type of energy cubes. Uh, so they can, you can easily count them by touch. They're just ordinary. Uh, I believe they were green cubes, so translucent ones. And yeah, that's about it. If you enjoy movies like Godzilla and I don't know, as I said, King Kong, there's a new movie coming out soon, Godzilla versus King Kong. So uh, if you like that theme, this game is awesome. It plays fast and it's very easy to teach. So yeah, as I said, the mechanics from Yahtzee, especially if someone has played Yahtzee, it shouldn't take more than three, three to five minutes to teach someone new to the game on how to play. So yeah, has any of you guys played this game? I haven't, but we have it on the shelf. And for some reason, I thought uh, it was inaccessible. So this is a good reason for me to grab it off the shelf and make us play it. I've played King of New York a few times. And uh, I agree, there's an extra layer to here and there that they add to the game, such as having to deal with uh, uh, buildings that may hide uh, uh, military uh, units, uh, soldiers, tanks, things like that. You can also move further into New York, into uh, Manhattan, and uh, and get some benefits from that. I wouldn't say that the extra things make the game that much more complex. That a player couldn't also regard that one as a as a g good gateway option. It seemed to me, though, with more players, like getting up to the maximum of six, that it did take longer than the 10 or 15 minutes uh, Urte is, is saying a King of Tokyo game can run. I don't know if that's just a, just a result of more players or um, the the extra elements, but it, it the game that I played was easily an hour. 
the 10 to 15 minutes I mentioned earlier was uh, about uh, waiting for a restart of the game if you get eliminated. So if you get you usually get eliminated from the game towards the end of the game. So you don't have to wait too long before the others finish. But yeah, usually it's 45 minutes. Uh, well, I've played with four players at most, I think. So, and it usually lasts about 45 to 50 minutes. Yeah, that, that, that's been my experience too. The elimination seems to come somewhere near the end of the game and the eliminations, they, they tend to come uh, fast and furious so that you're right, there isn't a lot of waiting before the game ends and you can either start another game or, or play something else. Yeah, and as you mentioned, like I, uh, King of New York adds a few new things which may, well, they will require some additional sighted assistance for someone who's blind because uh, it also adds this new movement mechanic which is not really present in King of Tokyo. In King of Tokyo, you're either inside Tokyo or you're outside it. And if you're inside, you can attack monsters that are outside and those monsters that are outside can attack the monster or monsters that are inside Tokyo. While in King of New York, you have multiple locations. So you have Manhattan, as you mentioned, and you have the other boroughs. So like Queens, um, Staten Island, and the others. And there are some, uh, let's say, uh, tactics that you can use to move between the boroughs. And you may need uh, additional assistance to know whether, uh, like, is there a tank in, I don't know, Queens or how many military units are available, are present in Bronx or where's the hospital located. So you you may require uh, additional sighted assistance for King of New York. And that's why I chose King of Tokyo because it's a bit simpler and easier to pick up. I get where you're coming from, but if uh, adaptation is a thing that's on the table for making these games playable as gateway games, that I think there are things that the players can do to make that work. Like, if I just ask, where am I? And uh, what's currently revealed on the different locations? There's only so many of them. So in time, I could, or or the player could, just memorize which borough is connected to which other borough. And uh, as far as the tokens go, you could probably, they, they seem large enough that you could put a Braille character or two on that to identify one from another, if that's the way you wanted to adapt that, or ask uh, a sighted player what's up there. Yeah. And then see, I guess you should bring out uh, King of Tokyo, especially when you have your nephews and nieces around. It should be fun with kids as well. It's a nice family game. That's what I'm thinking. It sounds like it would be a lot of fun. So I'll see. I'm trying to convince people we want to play board games tonight. So Yeah, awesome. Okay, let's move on to our number four. So these are the games that just missed uh, the podium. So Nancy, what's your number four? My number four is Near and Far, and it is a fantasy game where uh, you can actually play it in three different modes. You can play in character mode or campaign mode or arcade mode. And each of these modes allows you to tackle the game a little bit differently. It is a competitive game, but there is no player elimination. Everybody is in it till the final round. Your goal is to 
um, collect the most journey points, uh, they call them, but it's victory points. That's what it comes down to. So what happens is you start with a character and you're trying to collect resources like coins and food and gems and people. Um, and each of these things can help you to acquire the different victory points or journey points that you're you're trying to get. So the one thing I, well, a lot of things I like about this game, uh, aside from one type of card called artifacts, there, even though this is a competitive game, there is mostly it's all public information aside from the artifacts. So at the beginning of the game, you're dealt some artifacts and these are different goals you can choose to pursue in the game that will earn you some journey points or some special abilities during the game or both. And so you're dealt five artifacts and you pick one and then you pass them to the left and uh, the next player picks some and you have a, pi a new pile to pick from. Basically, it's called drafting. And so you're going to end at the end, draft a hand of five artifacts and you can discard some of those artifacts. You'll also get to pick two with of what they call advanced artifacts, which are often worth more journey points but are harder to achieve. And so with these artifacts, that sort of helps you hone in on what kind of game you'll be playing this time. So when you when it's your turn, you get to take some actions, and one of them is deciding what location to go to. So you might go to the general store or to the stables or to the farm. So logically, at the farm, you're going to collect some food, and at the stables... Um, you'll collect a pack bird, and the pack birds are important because you have to have pack birds in order to acquire treasure. Each pack bird can carry one treasure, and so uh, and you can have a total of three pack birds. And one of the ways at the end of the game to score points is to have all three pack birds and have all of them carrying a treasure. Um, but you can go to these different locations on the board and do things. Um, at the general store, you can get some money, or you can actually also pick up new artifacts. Perhaps you've completed all of the artifacts that you drafted at the beginning of the game and you want some more. And at the Mystic's Hut, you can just go get a treasure if you want to, um, that kind of thing. And each of the treasures also offers you a special game or a special ability in the game. Uh, but the, the thing that makes Near and Far shine for me is you can decide to go adventuring. And when you go adventuring, there are there's a map, and this is one of the places where you will need to rely on a sighted player. Um, you, you might tell them, look, I'm, I want to go um, buy one, one portion of a trade route. And if you get both halves of the trade route, you get more points. If you only get half the trade route, you basically get half the points. Um, but you can also say, hey, I want to go get one of these quests. And when you go get a quest... You read, someone reads from the quest book and it gives you choices. So it might say, you know, um, you find yourself uh, beset by bandits. You can either fight them off and you'll have to roll combat eight, or you can try to dissuade them from attacking you. And that's going to require knowledge six. So you'll have a certain amount of knowledge because you've been collecting resources, your adventurers. Um, each each adventurer that you buy has a certain scores like movement and knowledge and things like that. And you can, um, so you add up all your knowledge, let's say, and you say, okay, I've got a knowledge of three. And then you roll a die and you add that to your knowledge of three. And if you get six, then you've succeeded at the challenge. And if you don't, then you don't. And then based on based on how well you did, 
you'll get rewards and, and a, a piece of the story. Well, what happened? Did you actually persuade those bandits to go away? Did you persuade them that somebody else had more money than you? Um, and you can collect a great deal of treasure and rewards this way, but it's also um, a way to get yourself in trouble if you if you don't do well. Um, so all of this is, you know, again, trying to gather journey points at the end of the game. Um, you can set up camps as you go exploring, and each of those camps takes a tent, and each player starts with 14 tents. And when one player has placed all 14 of their tents, then the game ends. We do finish the round, so every player gets the same number of turns, which is something I like. I don't like it when the game just ends with that, that player. Um, I want everyone to have an equal number of turns. And so then you tally up journey points from all the things that uh, all the cards you've collected, all the abilities you've collected. It's it's a great deal of fun. Um, and as I said, you play in different modes. So if you just have time for one quick game and you don't want to set up for a whole campaign, you can play in arcade mode. And that doesn't use the quest book. There's actually a deck of arcade cards, which just have little short little quests. But we played in character mode the first time, and I think it took us four or five games total to explore the entire story of our characters. And I mean, there was there are eight characters in the game. We played three of them, so we could play in character mode again with a different set of characters and um, get to see their stories. And the stories are a lot of fun. And you acquire keywords in the game as you as you play out these stories. So one of the things you can receive as a reward is a keyword that maybe says maybe brave or sneaky or something like that. And that might help you in future quests. It's really a great game. And although I, of course, did braille all the cards because it's just who I am, you only really have to braille the artifacts so that no one knows what what goals you're trying to achieve as you, as you play through. Um, but I, I do keep track of some information during the game. Other people may do it differently than I do, but for instance, I, know, I like to know how many coins I have, how many gems I have, and so I just scribble that information down as we play. But you could always, if you didn't want to do that, you could always, you know, ask someone to, to help you keep track of those kinds of things. Um, I don't find the tokens to be particularly distinct enough to track them myself, and so, um, it's not, I don't think it's as effective to do it that way. But it's a great game and it's a lot of fun and it doesn't require too much railing. Yeah. And how was uh, your group? So this is a competitive game, as you said, and you played the story, well, the character uh, mode, basically the character story mode. And was your group like, instead of like being like super competitive on who will win, I guess you were all fo focusing on discovering more about your character stories rather than trying to be the winner in the game. I wouldn't quite say that. What I would say is we were kind to one another, so we made sure that everybody could get all of their quests to explore their story. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, we were still pretty competitive. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, we, we are a competitive group. It, uh, my daughter and I in particular are, are known for our competitiveness. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ren, have you ever tried this game out or checked it out? I have not. But I do have a question for Nancy. Would you consider Near and Far to be a gateway to pen and paper RPGs or to uh, board games? Or both? No, not to pen and paper RPGs. Um, 
maybe that's just my perspective. I've I've game, role played for years, and so I don't consider it that. I actually consider it. There's a number of games in the board gaming hobby that have some element of uh, role play in them. Uh, another would be the Pathfinder Adventure card game, things like that. Um, I consider this more a, a gateway to those kinds of games. Uh, another would be uh, be a gateway to say something like Betrayal at House on the Hill, right? Um, where there is some element of role playing, but um, it's not uh, it's not the reason you sit down at the table. Um, Near and Far is a lot about resource management and acquiring the things you need to complete your quests and, and things like that. So I don't I consider it more a gateway to that kind of play than I do to uh, any kind of role-playing. Awesome. So Near and Far, uh, I haven't played it myself, but I was checking it out before we started recording this uh, episode, and it looks like there's a lot of replayability value there, and there's a lot of story, and yeah, I I would love to check it out at some point. I would say this is a successor to a game that the same designer made called Above and Below. Oh, yes. And that game also has a storybook, and I love that game too. It's different. But one of the things they did was the adventurers that you use in Near and Far, uh, again, these are these are characters you can buy and add to your your table. Also, you flip them over and those adventurers are slightly different but can also be used in Above and Below. And I thought that was a, a nice touch. And so um, both games are improved by having near and far. So anyway, both games are great. I would certainly check out anything else this designer does. Uh, so do you have any particular reason for why you would choose uh, near and far over Above and Below? Uh, yes, the storybook for Near and Far is better. The because the storybook for Above and Below is uh, not tailored to individual characters. It's just a you go if you 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 get a card and it tells you what encounter to use, and so you just go randomly and pick that encounter. The stories in in Near and Far, um, if at least if you're playing in character mode, there's a full character arc for you, and so. It, it just gives you um, a bit of investment in your character as you see his or her story unfold. And I will say that I was sad by the way my character's story turned out. It didn't quite go the way I wanted to. And that my daughter says it was because I was too wishy-washy and um, didn't play the same way each time with that character. So, um, But I, I like that you can watch it all unfold and... Um, above and below, below is just more more random, but it's still a great game. And also, I like that one because whenever we play, I win. But that's a, a different thing. That was Nancy's number four, Near and Far. And now we can move to Ryan's number four. So, Ryan, what's your number four game? My number four is Pandemic, The Cure. Now, it's this is not a an expansion for the Pandemic board game. This is a standalone dice-based version of the same game and it plays fairly similarly for anyone who's familiar with the way pandemic plays so the players are working together 
uh, and taking on the roles of scientists, researchers, uh, and other individuals traveling the world, trying to find what they need to get the cures for the four different types of colored diseases that will spread out around the world. Rather than using a board of connecting routes as Pandemic does, it uses a set of six discs, one numbered one through six, that represent each of the six major regions of the world. And this sort of connected in a circle, North America connected to Europe, connected to Asia, and so on. And rather than drawing cards from a deck to spread diseases out around the board, you're drawing colored dice from a bag, um, each in the four colors. They get rolled, and whatever value they roll, and, and those values are, are pips on, on them so they can be distinguished by touch, those then get placed on one of the six discs, region discs, depending on which numbers rolled up. One of the things that is a little bit different here is that rather than spending action points to decide where you want to go and uh, what you what you want to do, each player, depending on the role that they select, will get a set of matching dice that have different symbols uh, marked on the sides of their dice. And those will have the basic actions of, of moving from one region to another, moving to any region, treating a disease, capturing a virus, that sort of thing. And so, like the Yahtzee mechanic we've been talking about in other games, you can, continue, you can roll and re-roll these dice as many times as you want, but um, what's a little different here is that First, you roll the dice all at once, but in successive rolls, you roll them one at a time, because it's one side on on the die that is a biohazard symbol, and so if that comes up, that die is locked, and that those biohazard symbols are how you force the epidemics. So there's a, a circular track that has these nice. Uh, chunky sort of syringe-shaped pegs that fit into the the holes that that go around this big chunky plastic track. And that's how you track the number of outbreaks and epidemics that will appear on the board. And I won't go through all of the rules, but essentially a lot of the things that you would see if you are familiar with Pandemic, you'll see uh, mapped to the way you play this game. The ways you win and the ways you lose are the same. The reason I chose this uh, as my number four gateway over, say, choosing Pandemic is because I feel that it's it's even easier to keep track of where you are, especially if you're not uh, as familiar with which cities might connect to which other cities uh, as you as you would need to learn when playing pandemic on the on the static game board with all the the different connecting routes so it's just one connects to two and so on and so on six connects to one uh the other thing that i feel it addresses with games like pandemic is that the you it's harder for the experienced player in this to direct what all of the other players will do because the actions the player have has 
on their turn will depend entirely on the rolls they make and whether or not they're going to push their luck at the risk of getting these biohazard symbols or not. So I'd say that the players themselves have a bit more agency and control. Someone can tell them what they think they should do, but the dice still have to cooperate. Um, I also feel that um, the, the dice uh, thing is a little, little more interesting. Uh, some people enjoy just rolling dice. And so there's a, it's another game where you get to do a lot of that thing that I find to be a bit problematic is the same thing. I think um, some people may have uh, problems with in a lot of the games. Like once you get deeper into the hobby, one of the big things about playing games in the hobby is player agency, the ability to make your own choices and, and, have some idea about what sort of things you want to do now and what things you want to do later. Uh, and so I think that if you're playing with people who have difficulty with player agency, then they may have some difficulty with Pandemic the Cure uh, because of the fact that what they can do will change depending on the roll of the dice. It's What they can do is clearly defined on the cards in front of them. Their roll will tell you this symbol does this thing. So the symbol matches the dice face pretty easily. So you could say, I've got this. This is what I, what I can do. Is this what I want to do sort of thing? So that's big part of why I prefer this version. And I played a lot of the pandemic board game. Uh, so I find the cure after having done a lot of, of that to be an interesting uh, way to, to re-experience that game. I also find that the, the ability to lose is a bit more forgiving in pandemic, the cure than in the original pandemic. It feels very sudden. But I wouldn't say that the game really plays any longer or any differently overall than the pandemic board game. Yeah. Um I I was comparing both of those games. Like in the Big Brother, so Pandemic the Board Game, uh it's it's more of a strategic game. And I noticed like I was watching a uh, Rado's gameplay walkthrough, or well, run-through, as he says it, uh, of The Cure, where he was also comparing them, and uh, The Cure appears to be like more tactical, like you are focused on your current objective, rather than uh, in Pandemic, you are basically like planning out moves in advance and uh, trying to balance out the collect collection of those city cards. So there's a lot of planning ahead in the board game while here you're just focusing on the current moment and just trying to manage the current moment i disagree in that i think that there's still room for planning in pandemic the cure but it's more let's say um optimistic than mathematical because, as again, you're at the mercy of what you can make the dice do on your turn. And so, while you can suggest that this player with this role should be doing this, and this other player with this other role should be doing that, and maybe they will be able to do it, 
Um, if they can't, then you have to figure out another way, a plan B to get things done. Hmm. Yeah, well, uh, in the board game, like you, because the way the epidemic cards are spread uh, in the player deck, like you, you know how to expect. Like if you get hit with an epidemic, you are more or less sure that there will be a few turns until the next epidemic. And in the cure, like if you get those biohazard rolls, well. Uh, the chances are one out of six per die, but still you may end up like getting multiple biohazard signs, which can cause a lot of headaches immediately. So, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what it is about the dice rolling in that game, but I never found that to be a serious problem. You're almost always guaranteed to get a biohazard symbol on every player's turn at least once Mm. so as long as you're prepared knowing that this track is going to move along one step at a time it still takes three or four of those to trigger an epidemic so it may impact whether or not a player decides they're going to re-roll additional dice after their first roll to see if they can get some of their dice to behave. And oh, and that's why you want to roll your uh, dice on successive rolls one at a time because you if if you're going to if you're going to end up rolling biohazard symbols, you may not want to roll a bunch of dice at the risk of a bunch of them getting biohazard symbols if you say decide you're not going to continue to re-roll if you get one. So, yeah. I don't think there's anything explicit in the rules that says you must roll successive dice one at a time, but it just seems like a good idea. Yeah. Nancy, would you like to add anything to what Ryan said or ask him anything about the game? I don't know. I might uh, cause trouble if I do. So I will say that the very first time I played Pandemic, I learned what it meant to have an alpha player. Yeah. And so an alpha player is someone who decides that they should make all the decisions for everybody. And I decided after that play of Pandemic that I wasn't going to play cooperative games ever again, and I, I did stick to that for a couple of years. <laughs> so, I just... I, I You may not want my comments here. No, I, I actually do, because I had an episode dedicated to this. Uh, the Pandemic and Quarterbacking episode was about this. Yeah. And so, I- even if you don't have an alpha player, and I have played Pandemic, I think, once since then, and we didn't have an alpha player. And my problem was still then, whether I played The Cure or the, the original board game, I didn't feel very connected to the board. It was just easier for somebody to say, well, you rolled this and it would you know, this is probably a logical move for you. I just didn't feel like, maybe because I, I don't know if it was just like I couldn't really see all the, the, the pieces on the board or whatever. I just It just didn't register, it didn't connect. And so I mostly played because that's what people wanted to play. That's where I think you've, you'd find The Cure to be a more enjoyable experience because it further abstracts away from uh, a network of routes to uh, a ring of of region groups that, that cover the world map. And and I have played the cure. We have the cure and I've played it twice and we lost horribly both times. And so oh. <laughs> uh, 
I I don't know this for whatever reason. But, but did the but did the loss feel as sudden and as brutal and soul destroying as playing Pandemic? I don't know. It felt pretty bad. It was it was it was a pretty bad loss. So <laughs> so I'm I'm not a fan of either of these games. Um, and I I mean I can see how they're they're gateway games, and I've heard that Pandemic Legacy is fabulous, right? And really is the precursor of a lot of the legacy games. But I just it, it doesn't click for me at all. Fair enough. And there may still be other cooperative games, uh, like Sentinels of the Multiverse that you'd find more appealing? Oh, absolutely. I play Sentinels and Pathfinder now, and I've I've given up my, my hate of cooperative games. I just don't play Pandemic. Yeah, awesome. So that was Ryan's number four, Pandemic the Cure. And my number four is a cooperative game called Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. So this is quite an old game. Uh, it was first published in 1984. I believe. And it has been reprinted a few times by different publishers over the years. Uh, right now, the most recent one is the 2017 version. And Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective is a narrative-driven story game where the players are presented with a criminal case and they're trying to solve who committed a crime. It has the map of London. In the few times I've played the game, we didn't really use the map much because there's also this uh, London directory where you can find the locations for the people you're interested in or the locations that you are going to investigate. For instance, when you're presented with the case, you see a location name and you can go to the London directory to check uh, what the location code for that given location is. And then you have this big uh, clue book where all the clues are printed. So there's a lot of text in this game. So there's a lot of reading. And I'm just, I'm, I will cover the accessibility notes in a bit. And so, for instance, you read the case as, as it's presented to you, you, you visit the crime scene and you're presented with some sort of evidence that you find at the crime scene. And then from there, you can go and interview other people, like people who may have been uh, witnesses or people close to the person that is murdered, if it's a murder case, and things like, and things like that. So you slowly discover more clues and you get suspects and you need to narrow down the suspects. Uh, usually it's quite hard to, let's say, determine a single suspect that you will be very sure about. So there is a bit of random, not let's say not randomness, but uh, at all points, there may be at least two people who may have committed the crime and eventually you'll need to decide on who you are going to like uh, pick out of those people. Um, so the theme is yeah, set in the Sherlock Holmes universe. It's in the Victorian era London. And uh, there are 10 cases in total. And once you played them all, you uh, it won't be interesting to replay them again uh, because, well, you, you, you know the story. So, but there's plenty of, fun time there. Uh, one case usually takes at least two hours 
and you are not limited by time. So you can play as long as you want and like decide to stop whenever you want. Uh, so whenever you think you've discovered who the criminal is or the criminals are, if there are multiple. So yeah, uh, from the accessibility point of view, as I said, there's a lot of text in this game. And as someone who is blind, that's a big problem. However, um, you just need one sighted person to play uh, this game. So that person will do most of the reading, but you can still contribute by analyzing the clues, by taking notes, and pretty much discussing with the other player, or if you are uh, multiple players, discussing with them on where to go next and who to ask or what location to visit. The game has a very uh, small rulebook, so the rules are very, very minimal, so it's very easy to pick up. And there are like points in the game, so you are basically comparing the number of clue points that you visit to Sherlock Holmes, and usually Sherlock Holmes solves the crimes in four or five turns, which is pretty much impossible. So when you compare your points to Sherlock Holmes, um, it's it just they've just put that there, I guess, just to have some sort of points. But that's not really the point in the game, like to compare yourself to Sherlock Holmes, because you're as in near and far. Uh, that Nancy talked about, you are here for the story. You are here for the writing. The, the writing is beautiful uh, in in this game. And you're just uh, going to different clue points, discovering new things. And yeah, so I say that this can be a game, like if you enjoy audiobooks, this is a game where you can interact with the narrator. And just, uh, I guess it has some elements like a choose your own adventure book and you can direct where you're going to go next and what you're going to investigate next or uh, yeah um, I really really enjoy this game and it's one of those games that can be also played remotely so uh, I've played a few uh, a few games remotely with other people and it's been quite interesting what do you think, Nancy? You think you'd like to spend an afternoon brailing the Directory of London? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. I, I think I would not braille this. I think I would just play it. Uh, this is a game my family, I think, would enjoy. And so we've been looking for a game like this because a couple of years ago, whenever it came out, we bought Mysterium, thinking it would be a great game to play. And uh, it was not. Um, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> let's just leave it there. We have bashed Mysterium so much on this podcast. Oh, yeah. It's a terrible game for blind players. So this is the kind of game that I think we would enjoy. And so I will look into getting uh, a copy. And uh, No, I won't braille it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's there's there's it's like uh, you pick up a book and you decide to braille a whole book. So <laughs> Right. Uh-uh. <laughs> not going to happen. When I talked to Ryan, um, uh, when I wrote about this game on the blog, Ryan like asked whether the publisher would be um, would be willing to send accessible PDFs for this game because it's mostly text based. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, that perhaps could lead to piracy easily because. Um, yeah, it's, it's just text. So, I mean, you can play, play it alone. Like if you have accessible PDFs, 
like play solo as well. Right. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe maybe we should ask the publisher whether they're willing to send accessible PDFs. We can certainly ask. Many publishers uh, have been surprisingly willing to help, and then others are are like you said concerned about it. And, um, have you thought about asking Red Raven Games if they would be willing to supply a PDF copy of the storybook for Near and Far? No, I haven't. No. Uh-uh. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's a cool game, and I I still haven't finished it. Uh, I know that in some of the later cases there are some puzzles that are a bit visual, so in order to solve them, you are required to see the puzzle itself, and but the uh, in the first at least in the first three cases. There's no such thing as a visual puzzle. So, and even if there is, I'm guessing like um, the sighted players can still like give you an idea on I don't know what it looks like and what they're trying to figure out. But yeah, it definitely is a very nice game for someone who's blind and looking to get in the hobby. I think we should see if we can get the text. Um. Yeah. All right. So yeah, that was my number four. And with that, we are going to wrap up this first part of this Gateway Games special. If you would like to get in touch with Nancy or Ryan, um, Nancy, how can our listeners get in touch with you? You can find me at Laura Vara on Twitter. That's L-O-R-A-V-A-R-A or at lauravara at gmail.com. And I can be found on Twitter as Red Meeple Ryan, R-E-D-M-E-E-P-L-E-R-Y-A-N, and via email, redmeepleryan at gmail.com. Awesome. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, uh, you can find me on Twitter at SightlessFun or email via SightlessFun at Outlook.com. You can also check out the website at www.sightless.fun. Come back in a couple of weeks where we will share our remaining top three gateway games for the blind. Thank you for listening. And remember, you can still have fun while being sightless. This episode was hosted by Ertan Shashko and edited by Alpai Shashko. We'd also like to extend our special thanks to Fighting Windmills for allowing us to use their music in our podcast. You can find them at fightingwindmillsmk.bandcamp.com. <laughs>